Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. June 6th has always been a really special day to me. Uh, You know, first, when I was a little kid, I thought it was cool because my only sister, that was her birthday. Then when Vicki and I uh, met and started dating, I learned that her birthday was June 6th. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. My only sister and my only wife have the same birthday. But then, you know what? And some of y'all already know this. Three of our grandchildren... Jonathan and Mariah's kids all have June 6th birthdays. So, uh, uh, you know, Miriam was born on June 6th. Three years later, John was born on June 6th. Three years later, Alexander is born on June 6th. So unless Mariah's hiding something, that pattern will stop after this uh, coming June 6th. But June 6th is important to me. But you know what's important to all of us, I think, because all of us, if we remember back to high school history or even beyond, we all remember, okay, June 6th, that's D-Day. You're saying, okay, help me again, D-Day. Remember seeing the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan? Uh, D-Day was the day when all the Allied troops left England, sailed to France, established a beachhead, and boy, that just, you know, saying it so uh, trivially sounds like it was an easy thing, and that's when the Allies landed on France, and it was just a matter of time before the Germans were defeated, and we, the good guys, won World War II. I mean, it has to be one of the greatest invasions, military invasions, in all of history. But, you know, one thing I I learned just recently, one of the things that made D-Day so successful, one of the things that made D-Day actually be a success was what they called the pre-invasion bombing. Starting about 24 hours before the first troops landed in France, the Allied forces bombed that section of France. I mean, it was just relentless. And they really don't know how many German soldiers died as a result, but at least 11,000 German soldiers died, maybe as many as 19,000 died during that uh, that uh, 24 hours of just bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb. And then tens of thousands of troops stormed the beaches of Normandy and other places like that. And that's what made it success. Now, bring all of that up because today what we're going to see, we're basically going to see the pre-invasion bombing before Jesus Christ comes back. Okay, we've been walking our way through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is, is, is God fixing everything. The book of Revelation is God meting out justice. The book of Revelation is God preparing the world for his son's coming. You remember, okay, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. Rather than accept him, they rejected him, 
And so what did he do? He went back to heaven with the promise, I will come again. I mean, one of the key doctrines of our faith is we believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. And the book of Revelation tells about that coming and all the preparation that God did so that this time the world would be ready to accept him and the kingdom that he's offered. 2,000 years ago, they rejected him. This next time, God is giving them the offer to accept him and be part of that kingdom. Well, we've walked through the book of Revelation, and this is, I think, our 14th sermon on it. We started way back in October, and we took breaks, you know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, etc. But today, we're going to get to that section that I'm just kind of calling. This is, this is like the last 24 hours before Christ comes. This is that pre-invasion bombing. Now, just to set the stage, just to kind of remind you, here's what we've seen. We've been walking through Revelation, and, and we saw John in the throne room of God. There was a document that Jesus Christ was given. He opened that document. It had been sealed seven times, and with each seal that was broken and more of the content of that document revealed, each one was a series of judgment, and there were seven judgments, seven judgments that were revealed with each seal that was broken open. And then when he got to that seventh seal, whoa, lo and behold, there's seven more judgments. And each one of these were going to be announced with the blast of a trumpet. So we call those the, the seven seal judgments, and now we got the seven trumpet judgments. And then for the last several weeks, we've been kind of in this big parenthesis where he's just been supplying a whole bunch of information, like, oh, there's going to be these two witnesses, and oh, here, let me tell you why Satan just absolutely hates God's people, Israel. And oh, by the way, let me tell you a lot about this Antichrist and his cohort, the false prophet. Well, then we're finally ready to resume the story. And so today is the day. We're going to look at the seven bowl judgments. Seven bowl judgments, what's that about? Well, the imagery is these angels have a bowl, and God fills up that bowl with his wrath, and they come over and they pour out that wrath on the earth. So we call them the bowl judgments, because that's what John saw in this really unusual dream that he had. So skip over to uh, chapter 7, or excuse me, skip over to chapter 15, and chapter 15 is just kind of the preamble to it. So we're going to go pretty quickly here in chapter 15, and then we'll slow down a little bit more when we get to chapter 16. But anyway, John's talking, so Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, he says, And I saw another sign in heaven. You know, it's interesting. I've, I haven't put a lot of emphasis on that phrase, but that, that phrase, I saw, I looked. I mean, it's got to be in here several dozen times in the book of Revelation. It's like John is seeing this thing. And he says, I saw another sign in heaven. That's interesting, another sign. You know, there's only been two signs so far. One was the sign of the woman 
in chapter 12, which stood for the nation of Israel that gave birth to the Messiah. And the other sign was the dragon that represented Satan that hated the woman and her child, the Messiah. Well, here's a third sign. And who is that third sign? What is that third sign? It's these seven angels with their bowls of judgment announcing that Jesus is coming. So in a way, it's like the three signs were Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, Satan, who absolutely hates them and wants to thwart anything and everything God does, and the other sign is Jesus Christ and his entourage as he invades earth once again. So in verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. I'm going to be done after this, God's saying. These seven, seven and done. Verse 2, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off the victorious, come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. So he, he looks out in this vision, and it's like, here's this sea, but it's a, it's a pretty cool sea. It's not, uh, you know, all choppy and wavy. It's, it's like glass. It's smooth. It's calm. These people have entered into uh, some peace. There's not this, this chaos that's been going on that we've been seeing. These people are up there, and, and they're singing, and they're singing the Song of Moses. And we don't know what the Song of Moses is. Some people might say it's, uh, you know, the song that the... Israelites sang after they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15. Others say it might be the song that they sang when they finally got to the land and they'd made it through the 40 years of wilderness wandering. That one's recorded at the end of Deuteronomy. We don't know what song they were singing, but it probably was a song of deliverance. But then notice, it says, and they were also singing the Song of the Lamb. Now, before we look at this Song of the Lamb, because he does tell us some of its lyrics, um, who are these people singing? These people singing are basically the believers who had been killed for their faith during the tribulation time. During all these judgments, some people who had trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, actually died because they were Christians, because they put their faith and trust in the real Christ, and they rejected the Antichrist. They're the ones that are always found singing, Revelation 7, Revelation 14. So, pretty safe assumption you know, as John's seeing this, and here's these seven angels that have these plagues that they're about ready to pour out on the earth as the final judgment, he hears these people up in heaven singing, and they're singing that song of deliverance that evidently 
Moses might have written after they crossed the Red Sea or after they got all the way through the wilderness and were ready to enter the land. And they're also singing the song of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Look at what it says. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. Thou art king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you. For thy righteousness acts have been revealed. These people are praising God because all of this stuff, and we think it's taken about seven years to met out all this stuff. These people are saying, finally, we're there at the end. Look at verses 5 down to verse 8. He said, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle, and the testimony in heaven, it was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out, of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their, their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures, these are the guys right next to God, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, I mean, it's like we're getting ready to finish it. We're almost done. You know, I meant to ask Vicky this this morning, but, uh, okay, I've, I've walked through seven pregnancies, okay? And uh, I, I never counted... And I actually got on the internet to see if I could find out, and uh, nobody ventured to guess, because uh, probably whatever the guess is would always be too, uh, too low. But, uh, you know, no offense, let's say that when a woman gets ready to have a baby, she has about 100 contractions. Now, uh, James, am I close? You're not going to, you ain't going to put anything out. You're an OB. Come on, you've never counted it. I mean, you've delivered like 12,000 babies, no? Cheryl, how about you? You're an OB nurse. Boom. Okay, well, we're, okay, well, then I'm just as much of an expert as you guys are. So uh, we're going to say the average woman has about 100 contractions. You know, and when they first start off, they're 10 minutes apart, then they're 7 minutes apart, then they're 5 minutes apart, and then I have the, had the experience, and they're 15 minutes apart, then they're 3 days apart, and then you go back to 10 minutes and all that stuff. And let's just say that they have about 100 contractions from... You know, the first real one, not those little Braxton Hicks ones. If I said that, if any of the women were close, they'd slap me for saying a little Braxton Hicks ones. They'd just say, you, got, you men don't understand this at all. But let's just say there's a hundred of them. You know, you go from zero to ten, and if you uh, guys don't understand that, someday you will. I'm not going to explain what's going on. But when you get to ten, you've maybe experienced 50 or 60 of those hundred 
And then in that last 15 minutes or 30 minutes or, heaven forbid, 45 minutes, I'm always so glad Vicki went real quick. We have kids that are very compliant. They got out of there fast. You know, when, when Dad said, get out, they got out. So, uh, but, yeah, right. <laughs> but those last 40, they came in about 15 minutes. It's like, boom, boom, boom. Boom, and then, you know, you got to the end. It's like it was, it was just one big contraction. You know, the, prank, the, the labor lasted 18 hours. You know, for 17 hours, we had to suffer 60 times. And then in that last 45 minutes, or maybe even 30 minutes, it was like 40 times. Tough. Bang, bang. Bang. I got all this from Jesus. This is in the Living Bible when he said in Matthew 24 that the end is going to be like birth pangs. Matthew 24. You know what? We're right here. She's at a 10. We're getting ready to see the 40 contractions that are going to deliver the Messiah ultimately. And there we call them the six bowl judgments. Remember, uh, we talked about how this whole thing, it's like it took, uh, took about three and a half years for the six, first six seals. The seventh seal was the last half of that season. And the last thing was filled with seven more judgments. And the last of that was seven more. I mean, this is an intense time. Now, I'm not going to venture a guess, but I imagine all this stuff that we're about to see here, maybe all happens to the earth in just a matter of a couple of months, maybe even less. Uh, some people talk about how in Daniel chapter 11 and 12, it talks about 45 days. You know, maybe it's that 45 days. Uh, a couple commentators think it is. But look what happens. Okay, we're in chapter 16 now. So we've had the preparation. Here's these angels. They all got their bowls. They're all filled up with wrath from God. And they are ready to pour it out on the earth. You know, in the poor earth, by this time, we, you know, we're at 8 billion people today. By this time, we're at least cut in half, maybe even more. Less than 4 billion people are on the, alive at that time. But now what happens? Verse 1 of chapter 16, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the angels, to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God onto the earth. And the first angel went, and just if you want to keep track of them, the first one was just these incredible sores or boils. The first angel went and poured out his bowl onto the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Remember, almost everyone has signed on and become a loyal, devout follower of the Antichrist, the beast. They've got a mark, maybe on their head or maybe on their, on their hand. They're his people. Those people, all of a sudden, they endure this incredible sore. 
malignant, loathsome, sore upon the men who had their mark. Look at the second one, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Uh, You know, blood is never good looking to me. I've never seen the blood of a dead man, but I'm sure that it's even more awful looking. Imagine, the sea is like that, and you're like, I mean, how in the world could life be sustained if if the sea is like that? Well, like I said, I mean, this this is right at the end, so maybe for a few weeks, the entire sea, the oceans, you know, are just totally wiped out as far as life is concerned, and, you know, when things push on because Christ has come and he starts to make all things new, that's how it recovers. But there's these sores, the seas. Look at the the, verses 4. Same thing happens to the rivers and the springs. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And, you know, this is going on, and it's all awful. And I find it really interesting that there in verse 5, John inserts what he's hearing from heaven. You know, we look at that and we say, that is so horrible. Here are people, and they're sick as dogs. They've got these sores. The ocean's blood. Now all the water's blood. This is terrible. And what is, he- what is the opinion of heaven? Verse 5. I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art, who art and who was, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. You know, we never think about that. Uh, we don't think about that, but the truth of the matter is we all deserve the wrath of God. We are sinners who, who, have, who, have, who have forsaken our God, who have, who have turned and wandered away from our God. There are, are people who have never known the Lord at all and have absolutely no regard for the things of God. And, and we don't fully understand that because we're like, they're not that worse than me. Truth of the matter is all of us have sinned and come in far short of the glory of God. I mean, God is a holy God, and human, humanity has basically spit in his face. And what God is in the process of doing is trying to get humanity to recognize that his son is on his way and they need to accept him. They need to turn to him. Look at verse 8. Here's the fourth one. Here's the fourth one that comes. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. And it was given to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with fierce heat. I mean, you hear so much discussion about climate change. That's some real climate change that's going to go on. 
during these last few months. I mean, who knows just what it's going to fully look like, but imagine the average temperature of the earth is rises, and, and there's no way to get relief from that heat. People are dying because of the heat. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And what did they do? Look at this verse 9. We're going to start seeing this. Instead of reaching out to God and saying, God, what do I need to do to be saved? Like the Philippian jailer said, they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Their natural reaction was not to say, oh my goodness, how have I offended the God of the universe? What have I done? Their natural reaction, our humanity is such that our natural reaction is not to reach out to God in repentance. Our natural reaction is to criticize and blaspheme and say, Who, what gives him the right to treat me this way? Notice that last phrase. I just wanted to point one other thing out to you. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. You know, one of the things that we can do to glorify God, it is to regularly remember that we are sinners saved by grace. Our repentance, people's repentance, is an act of glorifying God. Well, there's other ways to glorify God. We can sing a big song. We can do a big act. We can do another thing. Another thing is, is when I humbly before God say, you know what, that, that rotten attitude I had, that action I performed, that was sin. And I am so sorry, God. And claim the forgiveness that is mine because Jesus Christ died for that. That is one way all of us can glorify God. When we deny our sin, it's just another sin because we make ourselves a liar. Look at the fifth one, verse 10. Fifth one. The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. This is like a, a specific attack on, on the, the power base of, of the world's society at that time. The beast was the Antichrist, or is the Antichrist. And this, this is an attack directly on his kingdom, and it's darkness. And they gnawed their tongue because of pain. Now, I, I really don't know what this is like, and, and, and all, but, but it's like God caused it to be dark, and that darkness led to incredible planes. Maybe somehow the sun, light was blocked out, so it's like it was just 24-hour darkness, night. The sun's been eclipsed. Uh, it's interesting. It became dark for the three hours that Jesus was on the cross from noon till three on the day they crucified him. One of the plagues of Egypt, and by the way, a lot of these are very similar to the ten plagues of Egypt back in the book of Exodus. One of the final plagues was darkness, and that darkness produced a pain. 
how that exactly works, you know, I don't really have any ideas, and I didn't read any good ideas on it, so pretty much we don't know. But this last one here, or this one, this fifth one here is, is, is horrible. And look at verse 11. Does this turn them to God? No. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores. See, they still got the sores. The water's still blood. All this stuff is still going on. It's just pounding over and over and over. But they did not repent of their deeds. Look at the sixth one. This starts in verse 12. You know what this is? This is Armageddon. You know, we hear a whole bunch about Armageddon. Movies get made about Armageddon. You know, this flood happens. That's Armageddon. This is the real Armageddon, the one and only. Okay? This is not Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's, that's another battle. This is Armageddon. It's at the very end of that seven-year period of time that, that we call the tribulation, the great tribulation, and, and he's describing it here. He says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the river Euphrates, and the water was dried up and the way might, that the way might be prepared for the kings of the earth, or the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast... And out of the mouth of the false prophet, so I mean, you basically got that unholy trinity there. You got Satan, the Antichrist, and, and the false prophet. And it was like there was these frogs coming out. Remember, I mean, it's a vision, it's a dream, it's, it's weird stuff, but it all means something. And he saw all of this stuff coming out. In verse 14 says, and for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth. It's almost like these signs are going out there to bolster people in their unbelief. Remember, they're already shaking their fists in God's face, and now they're going to ultimately do it, and, and, you know, Satan sends out more of his agents to bolster people in their unbelief. John puts in there, verse 15, a little quote from Jesus. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and and men see his shame. I mean, you know, blessed is the one who keeps his head. Things are going really bad now. This is getting as bad as it possibly can get. Because we're getting to, to fixing to have incredible war. And uh, blessed is the one who remembers. And it's obviously a message to the believers that were still alive at that time. Keep your head. Keep your cool. Keep your eyes on, fixed on Jesus. Verse 16, And they gathered them together in the place which in, Hebrews is call, in Hebrew is called Armageddon or Harmageddon. Uh, they're at the foothills, of, at the foot of uh, Mount Carmel. It's an incredibly huge valley. I remember getting to go see it like 37, 38 years ago. Love to go back, but uh, 37, 8, 38 years ago, up on Mount Carmel looking out on this incredible valley. And evidently that is the, 
the epicenter of this incredible military conflict that is going to culminate at the end of, of time. And lots of other passages of Scripture pile on and tell us a little bit more about what that's like, but it is like this incredible war where the kings of the world come together and are battling against one another and against all things God. And it's to that battle that Jesus Christ is going to come and invade and stop. Uh, That was the sixth one. But there's one more. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It's done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. And we always hear about the big one. This is the big one. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. And the great city, probably talking about Jerusalem, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the Great, which we're going to learn a whole bunch about Babylon in chapter 17 and chapter 18. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give up the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. I mean, this, this earthquake was huge. Look at verse 21, the huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and what did they do? The men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because the plague was extremely severe. And that's where it ends. Chapter 17, chapter 18 tells a little bit more. Chapter 19 tells about Jesus coming. And that's where we're going to go for the next couple weeks. But let's just stop here. Like I said, this is like the final couple weeks of life here on earth uh, at the end of this season that we commonly call the tribulation. And it was all for the purpose of trying to prepare the world for Jesus' return. It's like birth pangs. It starts off hard and hard and hard, and then it gets harder and harder and closer together. And finally, at the very end, these last seven things are poured out. And then Christ comes. What do we make of all this? I mean, okay, why, why is this important for us to understand? What, what's the so what? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but the last two or three weeks, the so what has kind of been the same. And you know what? It really is the same today. You got to get ready, and you got to make sure other people are ready. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you need to trust him. 
Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As many as received him, John said, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God. When the Philippian jailer asked the apostle Paul, what do I got to do to be saved? What's my remedy for all this? The apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Do you know the Lord? I mean, do you, do, you, do you, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Are you prepared? When I say get ready, that's what I'm talking about. And I'm confident that many, if not all of us here today, are ready. And if we are, if you are, what are you doing to help those in your life who are not ready? I mean, there are people in your life who do not know the Lord. It might be someone you work with, someone you live with, someone you're related to, someone you live next to, but you, you are in their life, and you know the truth. What are you doing to help them? I mean, if you're, if you're a parent, where are you in the discipleship of your child? Or if you're a grandparent, what are you doing to help your grandchildren come to know this Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? I mean, God has strategically put you into the lives of people who have not trusted him because he wants you to be part of that process. And, and too many times we are just so self-centered, we don't do anything about it. I've talked a whole bunch about this over the last couple of weeks, so you, you kind of get the drift on what I'm talking about. But I, I wanted to put up one more, so what? You know what I see in this passage? And it's, it's, it's a minor thing, but it's repeated four times if I counted right. And so, therefore, that kind of makes it a major thing. There is a picture of the human heart in this passage that I think every one of us need to recognize. And we have to watch our heart. We have to guard our heart. I mean, did you see that? I tried to point it out. God did all of these things, and rather than reaching out to God in repentance, that human heart rejected him. Instead of saying, God, what must I do to be saved? These people were shaking their fist in his face. They were spitting on him. They were blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. Well, here's the deal. Every one of us is born a sinner. And just because we come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, just because we have been born again and we're a new creation in Christ, here's the deal. God in his wisdom left the old heart in there. We may have gotten a heart transplant with a new, good, spiritually-minded heart, the trouble is he left that old bad one in there, and I have that. You have it. 
The Apostle Paul, when he talks about it, he doesn't call it a heart. He just calls it the flesh. And if you ever go and read Romans 7, you see this battle that is raging, and you say, well, that, that's only for the young believers. No, the Apostle Paul was a pretty stout uh, believer, and he had that raging battle inside of him. Am I going to live and please God, or am I going to continue to live as that child of the flesh? And I have that. You have that. And we have to guard our hearts. You know, I, I don't think there's any of us here that, that it, it, it's beyond us to get so far away from God that when God does something to get our attention, instead of us saying, oh my goodness, Lord, let me come home. I've been out here in the pig pen and I want to come back to the big house. We could get so far from God that like these people... We so quench the Spirit, and they're, I'm not saying they're believers, but a believer can so quench the Spirit that instead of running home to the Father who wants to accept us and forgive us, we shake our fist in His face and continue to wallow in our sin. You've got to watch your heart. I've got to watch my heart. I mean, we need to keep ourselves so close to the throne of God that we dare not drift away. And, you know, the, the, you sit and say, okay, what do you recommend them? What are you saying? Well, I mean, you know, you got to practice those spiritual disciplines that we talk about. you got, you got to spend time individually in the Word of God. you got to be spending time reading the Word of God. You go days and days and days without reading the, God, the Word of God, you, you might say, hey, no, I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. I'm good. Me and God are good. Well, the people around you are saying, no, he, he's kind of changing. He's drifting. You got to spend time in the Word of God. Do you know what else you got to do? You got to run to the center of the church. You got to put yourself into the community of Christ because there in the community of Christ, you have some accountability, you have some fellowship, you have some connection, you're getting some content, and that is going to hold you near and dear to the Lord who saved you, to the God who saved you. And, and, and you've got to run into the center of that fellowship, into the center of that community. You go a long time sitting off to the side, you're going to start fading. You're going to start drifting. You won't see it, but others will. And you're just setting yourself up for demolition. you got to run to the center. You know, it, I was thinking about it as far as, 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 as our church is concerned. You know, one of the things our church has is a lot of small groups, for lack of a better term, venues. And, and let me just tell you, if all you're doing is coming and listening to this sermon and singing these five songs, and you're here from, you know, 1040 to, you know, 1215, and then you're drifting away, uh, I'm good, these guys are great, but that ain't enough. Let me just tell you, you have got to put yourself 
into a smaller venue, whether it's one of these home groups that meet in a home, whether it's one of these groups that meet at 9.30 on a Sunday, whether it's the women's study or a men's study or a Thursday morning guys' study or some other thing that we've got going, because we've got probably about a dozen small venues that are going. When you put yourself into that position and you're there with seven or eight other people, maybe 15 people at the most, there, there is an accountability, there is an encouragement, there is a place for co- connection and community and content, and that's the kind of thing that is going to help you not shake your fist in God's face. Because here's the deal. You and I both can drift far enough away The whole book of Hebrews is constantly reminding us that we can drift. And he is saying, you've got to stay firm. And how do you stay firm in the center of God's will? A huge portion of that is the community of Christ. The Word of God, the community of Christ, those are two essential elements to help you watch your heart. You don't want to be like these people really are, blaspheming the Lord who saved you. Uh, That is our potential, and we have to safeguard ourselves against it. You got to get ready. Help other people get ready. And you've got to watch your heart. You've got to guard your heart. Because your heart of flesh could take over. And you can so quench the spirit that, that you look and act like an unbeliever who can do all kinds of vile things. And that spirit of God is struggling, so to say, but you constantly quench him down. Don't do that. Watch your heart. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for just enlightening us about what is going to happen Father, it'd be so easy to uh, look at all this stuff and just kind of wash it away as just figurative language and just descriptive of some more bad times. But Lord, this is, uh, this is serious. This is you shaking the world, trying to get their attention. Father, I pray that today if there is someone here that is not ready I pray, Father, that today they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. They would trust in the only one who can save, the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. I pray, Father, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And, Father, we who are saved, Father, help us to guard our heart so that we would be warm and vibrant And when you shake our lives, when you put pain into our lives rather than us accusing you or shaking our fist in your face, 
I pray, Father, we would repent in dust and ashes, as Job said. Because, Father, we want to walk so close with you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand.